If you had to describe this whole season of Colorado Avalanche hockey in one word, what would that word be? Streaky. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna stall a little because I didn't tell them this question was coming, so they have time to, to think about it. Um, but streaky is definitely a good choice. Um, but for the others, from the top of the division at Thanksgiving to out of the playoffs by Valentine's Day, back in them by the trade deadline and dead in the water two weeks later, to Game Seven of the Pacific Division Final, how do we cover that whole ride in one word? Is roller coaster hyphenated? <laughs> I think it's one word. Count it. Count it. It's boring, but I'll say inconsistent because you know that goes along with streaky and roller coaster. Um, you know, it, you you look at what they were at various times in the season, and then sort of what they were at other times, and you just don't understand it. I mean, yeah, there were ups and downs, and you could say that for many different teams, but the Avs were truly streaky. They they would put together five and six game win streaks. Streaks where they wouldn't even lose a point. It's just, it's kind of crazy. I, I put some of that on the coaching staff just because, you know, I, I don't totally disagree with this thinking, but they will stick with something that's working far past its expiration date. I think this... That would explain, I, I would use that to explain like the whole season was. I think we're way past one word here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I would say that if, if we're going to pull it all the way back before we get into everything, to, to describe the season as one thing, it was to keep hammering away at something that had worked in the past and wait for it to come back. And it did. So stubborn. Yeah. That definitely. That's a great word. Yeah, that's that's like another good one to look at. So, be, because the streaks were so extreme, the differences between good and bad stretches, the differences between good and bad goalies, between you know best top line in the league and top line kind of making the rest of the lineup be a disaster, to being unable to win in overtime in regulation versus winning every overtime game in the postseason, to you know Tyson Jost being terrible and being very good. My my word is very. So we have streaky, inconsistent, stubborn, and very. Yeah, I think that's good. And roller coaster. That covers it. All right, well, let's start the show. This has got to be one of the gutsiest clubs in the National Hockey League. It's a breakaway. McKinnon. Pure guts. <laughs> they got nothing but guts. Brandon right here with a terrific backhand pass. And look at the patient. My goodness. Guts all over the place. I can't believe it. And after 22 years. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Steph, and you're locked into the final episode of Burgundy Radio for the 2018-19 season. Coming up on the show, Avs fall to the Sharks in Game 7. And boy, are there things to say about both it and Game 6. But... Before we do that, let me introduce the disembodied voices you just heard from. Say hello to Earl. Hello, friends. And say hello to Jackie. Hello. And say hello to Rudo. Hey, hey. Let's start with Game 7. We're going to come back to Game 6 in the series as a whole, but let's get Game 7 out of the way. And in fact, let's get that one topic out of the way, too. This will not be an Altitude production where we blast the offside review for two hours straight, but let's go ahead and get to it. 
Game 7 opened up pretty equal between San Jose and Colorado, which is a win for Colorado. They win an even game without too much trouble. It's just that San Jose can dominate them in a way that doesn't really go the other direction. Alexander Kerfoot draws a penalty, and the momentum-killing power play is replaced with the McKinnon-killing power play. He slams himself into the boards in the neutral zone for no reason, really. A fairly nothing collision, except his arm was at the wrong angle, and he sprains his shoulder. While he's back in the room making sure the collarbone isn't broken, the Avs take their own awful penalty, this one to Derek Broussard. It's hard to be mad at that call because of how much Kerfoot embellished the first one. They killed the penalty, but Avs killer Joe Pavelski returned to this game because of course he did. It was the most cursed game I've ever seen. And he deflected in a goal right after the power play ended. Colorado's midseason fragility kind of showed its head here, and San Jose just crushed him. Thomas Hurdle added a second goal as fully five Avs skaters floated around flat-footed in their own zone. And then McKinnon came back, and now it was a game. Miko Rantanen gets a tip goal of his own as the first period expires, and then... I don't really know what there is to say about this disallowed goal. Colorado steal a breakout pass while they're changing. McKinnon finds a hilariously open Cullen Wilson, who does not miss from there. But because Landeskog was trying to get through the bench door, which is in the zone, because the shark tank is cursed, we get an offside challenge. Please, someone explain the challenge. Both rhetorically and also, someone please explain the challenge. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I cannot explain the challenge, and, you know, I, I, I don't think it's very clear one way or the other, and it's... You know, I, I just I, I think it's inappropriate in a game of that magnitude, in a situation of that magnitude that, you know, that they decided to overturn it. But, you know, here uh, we are. My my understanding of it, and I will be clear that I do not have the firmest grasp on offside and all its very, very minute particular but from my understanding is there's three problems with the goal. First, that Landeskog was changing. And I believe he changed for Wilson, who came on and scored the goal. So, first of all, that part isn't even incorrect because if, if Landeskog was not making a legal line change, then even the whole Wilson part would have been invalid so so the rule says that you have like a, a five foot buffer if you're changing to allow for someone else to come on the ice and so that all seems fine but it seems like somehow there's a rule where Landeskog doesn't count as an actual player since the fifth player had come onto the ice so he is out right. there existing as a sixth player however even the, but as a human being I guess he needs to still be on side so, even though he's move, not on the ice, technically. right? Even yeah, exactly. Even though he is legally off the ice as far as the play goes, for some reason he still needs to be on side. So, then the next part of the rule is: is he is he on side while the play is going? And so then you would say by his existence on the ice in this, the offensive zone, the answer would be no. So if that was just the question, you can clearly see on replay. And and in every angle that he's actually literally on the ice. So if that was the question, then this isn't a controversy. But apparently what it comes down to is that, okay, he's on the ice, but he would be legally onside if he had tagged up. So by tagging up means as long as he had touched the blue line at any point, 
he would have been tagged up. So then that is called into question. And there is, for some reason, there is no angle or photo or video that doesn't look like grainy cell phone quality from 100 foot away. I have no idea where there's no cameras on the other side of the ice. So that is, that is the point in question why Altitude and the people that are the most upset is, is if there's evidence that he did not touch the blue line, just release it. And so that's kind of where we're at with that part of the controversy. The other part is all of these things don't add up to it being conclusive. The calm the ice was a goal. It, the only reason why they were looking at it was a challenge. So if you need to zap rooter it, find one out of a hundred angles of grainy footage to say, well, yeah, maybe he didn't ever touch the blue line. There's no way you can overturn this goal. There's, Agreed. There's so many things that kind of <clears throat> seem to exist in two simultaneous conflicting realities in this in this ruling. Like Landeskog is on the ice, but also not on the ice. And because like there's just two different rules at play or something, I don't know. And he's like if if you look at the video, his he could be tagging up. He could not be tagging up. You can't really tell because there's like, you know, five pixels per inch at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and if if your bench door is just not in the offensive zone, then no one like none of this is a problem. Um, and Landis God kind of owned his own role role in this whole play. Like, look, I got to get off the ice quicker. And yeah, sure. If you if you hop up onto the boards to get you know over them faster and get out of the way, well, now you're on apparently offside because your feet aren't on the blue line. Like that rule is bogus. And there, that's part of the conversation too. Is in this still shot was his foot on the ice on the blue line? Like, go away. I don't care. It didn't well, here's a fun play. fact that I heard on on. Braidman's uh, 31 Thoughts podcast that Colin Wilson was on the ice for Matt Duchesne's goal that, that everyone kind of traces the offside review back to when he was with the Predators. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the hilarious thing about that is that would have taken five seconds to look at the video and say, okay, that's offside. <laughs> like, we've gotten to the point where we're going past common sense. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. Review, the review process should be to check for the very, very wrong, the egregious calls. You look at it, you say, oh boy, that was wrong, we'll reverse it. If if you're not at that point, the call in the ice stands. Like it, It's a very simple fix. You just treat it the exact same way you treat a player changing. As long as they're close, it's fine, as long as they don't play the puck. That's how they yeah. treat changes, and not getting too many men... Landeskog was miles away, about as far away from the puck as you can be while you're changing in this situation. So, yeah, but this phantom five foot zone that we hear about occasionally, there's no, you know, since it's not codified anywhere, we don't know whether it extends into, um, you know, the attacking zone or uh, zone. if the bench goes into the zone, it should. Right. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, you know, but I can see how they would say like, no, you got to enter from the neutral zone on that too. I, I mean, mean it's, again, it's just stuff that's not written down anywhere that they can just, you know, interpret how I, they I, I get that, but they need consistency, right? Sure. You can't have these rules where over here it's fine to be five feet and then at the red yeah. line, you know, if you're close, it won't be icing. Right. But 
then you get to the blue line, and it's like, sorry, your skate was one atom too far. <laughs> I know. We, it's like I, I mean, so I think the big question here. Yeah, I, I think the big question here is, other than for the Sharks and their fans, you know, does a call like this add anything to the NHL? And no, it significantly NHL? takes away. Correct. You so... have an exciting game that's now tied <laughs> with an exciting play, and it gets wiped out after multiple minutes of downtime. That makes people not want to watch it. Even I was like, wow, the rest of this game, I'm not going to be convinced if a goal actually counts or not. I did well, not yeah. care about the rest of the second period at all. I barely looked at it, frankly. I mean, in all likelihood, that game goes to overtime if it ends up tied there instead of 3-1. And then Alex you know? Kerfoot can get off the snide and get his get his goal that we were trying right. to give him. We knew he was going to do that, but he didn't have the chance. And, and you know, this was just another thing that we were robbed of there. He may never I... score again now. I have, like, goal-waved <laughs> off anxiety every single time. There's a, There's a big goal... In either the playoffs or at the end of the season, I'm always like, "Are they calling this back?" It's always in the back of my mind, even if there's no reason for me to feel that way. Because yeah. you, if you want to find a problem with every goal that's scored, you probably can. Yeah, it's probably it's horrible. Could. At least one time a game, I see the Avs enter the zone, and I'm telling myself, <laughs> "Please don't score here because this is going to be offside." Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's sort of like driving around. It's like basically everybody's doing something wrong. Not egregiously wrong, but, you know, in general, people are doing something wrong all the time when they're driving. And that's that's the way hockey is. I mean, it's like if you called a game to the letter all the time, I mean, it's like you would be three on three the whole game. And it would just be unwatchable because there'd be a whistle every five seconds. Right, And that's, you know, penalties are used to manage the game and calls like, calls like this are in place because they're supposed to right a wrong. And, and this wasn't a wrong, you know, this was a technicality. I mean, as, as crazy as goaltender interference is, this offside is worse, which is crazy because it's about a line, literally a line. See, I don't know what goaltender interference is. And no. Nobody does, I but I, th I think that is actually being called more logically than the offside is now. I mean, that's the problem, is we want to get these calls correct, but to get them correct, you have to know what the rule is. And nobody seems to know <laughs> on both cases. Well, it's just, I, you know, you're, you're trying to officiate a game that's being played at a very high speed, and then re-officiate it later in low speed, and it just... I don't. I just. I don't think that's appropriate. I, I just don't think you can do that. Like I, I think replay works great in football because you know they have tons of downtime and it's not generally a fast game anyway. So you know if if, if something really needs to be looked at closer, they have the time and it's you know. Well, nobody knows what a catch is there, so <laughs> that's the same yeah, problem. That's true, and they ha you know that's been a problem for forty years too, but. You know, it doesn't take away from the game if they have to look at something like that. And, but and hockey, it, come, it really does. Like, even if down, the Avs had gotten that goal, there was momentum <laughs> being robbed every second that they sat there playing with their iPad. Well, what the NFL has is cameras that are on the ground, on every line, on the sideline, on the goal line. And you definition. can see each blade of grass. So yeah, if you're true. making a call that has to do with the line... You could probably get close. It this, it's this is the second round of the playoffs too, right? Like, 
If you're not only, prepared now, when are you gonna be? Yeah, we're the gonna, only we're gonna angle, get to the moment in a little while. They they had was the TV angle, which was on the other side of the ice. There was no other angle, nothing. And I don't believe that Toronto or whoever had this angle because if they did, then they should have released it. It, it would have been released on at NHL PR if nothing else. It would have been on NHL Network if nothing else. And that, and it boils down to this is what my problem with it is, is, is that it was inconclusive. You cannot prove that's a conclusive call. So, before we, you know, finish out the rest of this game real quick, like, how do you fix an offside review? Well, I, I mean, next year they're going to have, you know, what whatever they call their Hawkeye system place. At least, I mean, I, I guess that's, they're supposedly supposed to. They're gonna have that, I think. Um, so, you know that that installs, you know, a multitude of cameras all around the rink, and they are going to be tracking the puck and players and things like that. And they should be able to have, you know, good intel on whether someone's skate is on the line or not. I mean, you know, the Hawkeye system in tennis can, you know, it's 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 about it's less than a quarter inch accurate. So. You know, they'll be able to tell, but it's just until even, they have that, they can't. Even then, it won't, like, clarity to the rules, I think, is the biggest thing they need to change that will help in defining situations like this. But uh, ultimately, you're just never going to fix it all the way, but it needs to be better than it is now. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, mean, if like... you, I mean, the rule is dumb, but if the way you're enforcing it is dumb, too, that really doesn't help. I mean, at least they'll have the enforcement capabilities next year. Sure, nobody know nobody knows the what enforcement can is. be much less dumb if you have a clear rule do you think that yeah. the penalty for a failed challenge played a, a part in this too what that the sharks it, would have I sure not hope be not scared <laughs> at all of the avs getting a power play after being incorrect no I'm mean, like that the no, officials because... wouldn't want to reward an, an, you know give out a penalty for this little inconclusive call. Well, if they weren't thinking joke. about the fact that this was the tying goal in the middle of a game seven, <laughs> which they obviously weren't, then I doubt they were worried if San Jose was getting a penalty off that. We'll we'll get back again to the to the moment uh, shortly, but I want to say as we finish off this game, like Wes McCauley is like legitimately, in my opinion, one of the best refs in the National Hockey League. But at this point in this game, between both soft as hell penalty calls and this goal review, wow! And but was the McKinnon review his problem? Right afterwards. Was the review his fault? I mean, I've, I don't know what the source on this is, but I've seen people say that the call was made by officials looking at an iPad and not by Toronto. Then that's no, even, the, then that's the linesmen make the calls. In the, in the arena, the linesmen make the calls, not the refs. Right, but then the review was done by the officials, not like it wasn't Toronto's decision. Yeah, but it's the linesmen that do the review. Well, it's the whole, but like I said, the whole crew. Yeah. So San Jose took the game over from here because, of course, they did. That's a lot of momentum for Colorado to lose. And Yudistanskoy finally makes it 3-1 to one as he comes around the goal, turns, and takes a shot that I guess Grubauer did not expect to come because he was starting to push off the post, and that's where it found a hole. He sure didn't look like he expected it. In the third period, Colorado outshot San Jose 15-2 to two and did basically everything but score, but it just wasn't enough. And the season ends there, because Schrodinger's Landeskog is apparently in a state of both on the ice and off the ice, because it, it's not a too-many-men penalty, and you wouldn't want it to be. But it's somehow offside. <clears throat> yeah. it was The end of that game was tough, man. It 
it summed up Kerfoot's entire playoffs where he gets three whacks at it, like from two feet out pat, pat, with pat. an empty net for the Avs and just can't get it in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they also had the third period power play, which they did. I beat that horse all year and, and we're I gonna, said it was going to cost them, and it did. Yeah, we're going to beat it again, so hold on. <laughs> well, I mean, the power play, I, I don't know what was worse, that power play or the one in the first that just totally killed the whole game for him. <laughs> well, I mean, it, okay. it wouldn't have totally killed the whole game for him if Nathan McKinnon didn't break himself. That That yeah, is I pretty mean, much a metaphor for the entire power play. I mean, I, that I, McKinnon I gets hurt he, on the power play. Come on. I mean, I think Matt getting hurt obviously had an effect, but I, I, I mean, they still would have had their momentum sapped because of that awful power play in the first anyway yeah so. but they don't completely crumple because their best player is hurt just because the power play right. fails like they completely crumpled after that that second goal was shocking yeah it looked like yeah, they one were team they were reeling the pretty hard without mckinnon like it was clear <laughs> it was one to nothing in the first period and the abs looked defeated you just can't have that So yep. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the power play stuff um, on the other side of this. Let's rewind to game six and then kind of put a bow on the whole playoff series because this was Colorado's best game this postseason to me apart from maybe the one or two. Like, okay, it's the best game this series is actually what I mean to say there because I kind of forgot about there's a couple of beatdowns of Calgary, which were pretty nice. Uh, it only went to overtime in the first place because someone put a hex on Nikita Zadorov in the third period. The scoring went back and forth, but we've complained about this series, uh, about how the Avs have you know ten shots on goal halfway through the game. That was San Jose in this one. They managed twenty-one shots on goal in regulation. That's great shot suppression against a team that owns Colorado. After Tyson Jost got off the shit list in Game Five with a goal off his pants, he put in a sick shot to open scoring here, and then the Sharks tied up. JT Comfort gets his third of the playoffs, and after the Sharks tied up again, he declares "fuck you" and gets his fourth too. That's when someone hexed Z. Now, he's been struggling this whole game with the puck. It's been sliding off his stick. It's been bouncing on him. His passes are a little lacking. So maybe the stick's been cracked all game and nobody noticed. But he takes a slap shot from the blue line, only no, he doesn't. The stick blade goes to the moon and the puck stays put. San Jose gets it rushed the other way and after a short shift, the Avs have five skaters with four sticks. Mark Edward Vlasic fires a pass through the crease, only no, he doesn't. The puck goes hard off Sidorov's skate and into the goal. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was just brutal, and I, like I feel bad for Z too because he's really was one of the Avs' best defensemen defensively in this entire playoffs, and then you get things like that happen to you. Thankfully, the Avs won that game, but man, yeah, I'm gonna. I, I think he should talk to his buddy Nate about the three stick rule. <laughs> uh. Because if he's if he's reusing sticks, because this I mean this isn't the first time we've seen him do that. He's done it several times in the playoffs and a, and a bunch of times through the year. So like he, he puts a lot of torque on that shot, and if it's just you know if there's a a tiny little defect, it's gonna just go blam. It's in a little bit of technique. Sometimes if you really hit it hard, kind of miss a little, the stick blows up. I don't think it's all luck. I think some guys are a little bit more prone. To having blown up sticks, but it really is, really was the worst possible time. I know yeah. I don't blame him. I mean, they they got running around in the zone for a good I, bit of time after that. No, yeah, there were the a lot of problems with yeah. the forward core on that play as well. But 
I think Z uses like a 102 flex or something. He needs to go talk to Chara and get that 130 flex or something. So. Yeah. So Gabe Landeskog did finish this one off in overtime with, honestly, a terrible goal on Martin Jones. Yeah, that was... He, like, just whacked at that puck desperately. There was nothing on that shot. Yeah. And the Avs are finally able to put Game 6 away. You know, I thought they played great in this one. They forechecked well. They connected through the neutral zone well. They even won the face-off battle somehow. Yeah, no. Yeah, they, I thought the Avs were super solid, like, all game long, other than some bad bounces. I was I, glad I that the... they got to have another heroic moment. One more. Yeah. I, I thought they were better in game four. Or perhaps San Jose was worse. Um, you know, like the game four was probably the, you know, the, the game where the abs looked the best. Um, but I, this was probably the most thrilling and even game that we had of the whole series. I mean, I, I think it really summed up how the season, the, the whole series went. This was, it was very back and forth. Yeah. This was the game where Landy sure looked hurt. Ranton yeah. probably was hurt and then got more hurt because it got blown up. Yeah. So the depth really stepped up here, and the Abs had a much more complete lineup that kept up with the Sharks, with they, which they struggled to do for a lot of the series. Yeah, this was the first game they went 70. It was. And then when Miko almost died, it was like, uh, maybe that wasn't the greatest idea. It's just unlucky. Especially point. since they had... 34 seconds of power play time. I mean, was show. there any doubt Bednar was going to go to Nemeth when they were facing elimination? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that's why I felt like he was in as well, because and of course, it partly had to do with Calvert just couldn't play anymore. But, yeah, if they were going to go out, Bednar was going to play Nemeth. And it's not like it hurt the team to play Nemeth. Like, the Colorado played really well in Game 6 and when, when they were engaged in Game 7, they played really well in it, too. Yeah, they just didn't play him a whole lot. He he really was pretty low. Even even for him, it he was pretty low. But sure, I don't I don't think any kind of last person to dress on the roster just decisions are really make that much of a difference. So yeah, it is. I'm gonna it is. I'm gonna disagree here a little bit just because I think that I, I think that having Andrew Ghetto in the lineup probably would have been better than having Nemeth. And I know a lot of people groan, but you know, Sven uh. does think <laughs> Sven does things right. You know, he doesn't look that great in the defensive zone a lot, but um, it, it seems like a lot of times when the Avs think defense, they think blocking shots when good defense is having the puck in the offensive zone. And that's something that Andrew Ghetto is pretty good at. So it's 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 a philosophical thing. Well, I th I think doesn't the make that much difference, but I you know I would have rather I, had Andrew Ghetto in there. I think then you you got to open it up to him versus Borg or Broussard, which which is a different discussion. Sure. I don't right. I don't think having Nemeth in was what hurt, but right, you know but that that, that's something we've been talking about all. I mean, I agree, but at the same time, with two and a half minutes left in Game 7, they had Nemeth <laughs> pulling shots from the blue line, and it was like, not like this. I know. Yeah. Nemeth and Cole were on the ice. Yeah, was I was like, furious about that. Oh that my was God. not a good goal. Um, but... but I mean, look, Game 6 and 7 were the best Broussard played in Avalanche uniform. So like, it's, By a mile, it's, yeah. That's hindsight on that decision, but I mean, having him in was the right call in hindsight. 
So yeah. that's that's probably enough like game specific chatter. Let's just kind of look at the series, um, you know, piece by piece, and the whole playoffs in general. And uh, let's go ahead and start with God. The power play was fucking dreadful. Yeah. It, yeah. It I somehow I, got worse. <laughs> I think you can make a case that the power play cost them the series against the Sharks. Oh yeah. I, that, oh yeah. It's a pretty easy case to make. I think. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're flat out horrible, and it's uh, the the terrible thing is that they were so much worse than every other team, um, you know, in in the second round. I mean, it's like you, you know, you look at sort of shot rates and, and stuff like that, and it's like the Avs were, you know, they were at like fifty to sixty percent of what everyone else was doing. I mean, it wasn't just they were ineffective; it's they were actually. Really, really bad. They, they, were, uh, they were worse than ineffective. They were useless. Yeah. Well, and it, they it, got McKinnon broken because of it. So I mean, it that was a freak worse thing. Still, still, if they actually could have held the puck in the offensive zone during the power play, McKinnon doesn't get hurt. It's not like he got hurt trying to fight for a puck in the offensive zone or anything like that. It was because they had lost the zone and he was trying to battle for it in the neutral zone. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. That is the most ridiculous way to get your best player injured in a game seven. And I think that was the perfect metaphor for what happened there. Yeah. I I mean, I mean, yes, obviously, McKinnon getting hurt, it's a terrible power play, and it sucks, but at least McKinnon was moving his feet while he got hurt. You, should, you <laughs> shouldn't have to in the neutral zone, is the point. Like, you shouldn't be in a race for a puck in the neutral zone. I don't That's, even think he won the battle, either. It's totally fair, but they get it into the offensive zone, and they're glued to the, the ice. It's it, It's been bad all year, but it was ridiculous in the playoffs. I mean, absolutely no one was moving, even, like, two or three feet when they got the puck. They would stand there, handle the puck for two seconds, and pass it back to the guy who gave it to him. And yeah, I think the power play goes back no to urgency. the theme of it worked at some point, so just keep doing the same thing, and maybe it'll start working. Yeah, it worked days. when well, just... two of the three of their, our best players had over 30% shooting. <laughs> is when it worked. Yep. That's um, literally what it comes what, down to. I, the thing is with the power play, I mean... I mean, you could tell in the Calgary series that it was an issue, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't losing them games and it wasn't losing the momentum even really. Um, but you can't really do much about it at that point. You can't install a new power play system and have it work in the middle. Of the you know, playoffs. I don't know. I don't know if that's an excuse. I mean, you're in the playoffs, you're facing elimination. You need to think of something like, I mean, you could tell them to go out there range... and just play pond hockey but you can't really do something that's new and structured i mean and i agree with that but also we've been asking for them to change it since february so they've had time but this is also what the playoffs is there's there's always the punch counter punch there's always the strategic changes like colorado like there's a like, there's a range. Like, I, I get that something that you've been practicing and working on for eight months, you don't just stop doing it completely. But there's also no excuse to not do anything and not try different personnel. I mean, I think that could have been something that would at least give the Sharks a different look, a different idea. It, it, it was too easy. It almost said, 
it, it just played right into their hands. It was too easy, and they did absolutely nothing different. And I don't think that's an excuse. No, I, I agree with you there. I, I think that you know there's nothing they could do about the structure or how they're being coached to play on the power play. Um, but you know, it's it's you know I, I understand that you're you know you're going to go down with your your best guys on the ice if you know if they can't do it, no one else can. But I just I don't agree with that mentality. I mean, when you have access to someone like Kale McCarr. And you have some guys like Comfer and Jost that are showing signs of life. Then you know, you you didn't have to stick with the same five guys there. Especially when you know your best player has a grade two sprain in his shoulder, and your other yeah. two best players have undisclosed injury that they've been fighting with for weeks too. Right. But I mean, at game six, now you're talking. Yeah, it's probably too late to make a major adjustment to your power play. But Jared Bednar got credit from national media repeatedly this postseason for how the avalanche game plan for calgary which is the, your your even strength structure is way more overarching than what you do on the power play and they oh, yeah. also made adjustments in the san jose series to defeat the you know what they're doing against the trap to you know throw the puck yeah. in deep and win the race or to support your breakout better they started doing things differently that worked like they, there yeah. were changes that I they could make Unfortunately, I think that went out the window a little bit in Game 5 and onward, but Games 1 through 4, they were doing a great job of adjusting. In 7, it really got got kind of thrown out the window. They were doing a lot of trying to enter the zone with possession, and it just wasn't happening in the third period. There, yeah. There were times, like, they, they outshot San Jose 15-2, to two, but if they don't get stymied at the blue line of two dozen times, it could have been 25-2. to two. No, I, I will agree that I think, you know, I think his... His five v five plan was was very good when it was working. Uh, I think I, I think whatever the Sharks countered that with late in the series, he kind of. I, I don't think it was bad coaching or anything. I just I think he ran out of stuff to counter their move. Yeah, and that's, that's not necessarily <clears throat> and, his fault. I mean, he, the team can right. only do so many things. Right. So um, my next my next topic for the playoff series is not the power play and it's not the coaching. It's Kale McCarr. He was good. He's he good, was... boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a series where we expected to see Kale McCarr maybe have more of a challenge than Calgary put up, where he's going to get punched in the mouth a little bit more. He's going to have less time to do everything. And there were some times when he did get exposed around, like, around the net area where he's, his game still needs some work. Um, but let's talk about what we've got in Kale McCarr. Because he had how many points? He had six points in ten games in the postseason which is more than several players who played 12 games. Like most of the team. <laughs> yeah. 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 One, two, yeah, three, I think four, five, four, six, seven, eight. Well, the tied for seventh on the team in playoff scoring with JT Comper. I think he had four points in the series too, which I don't know off the top of my head, but I think that's that would be better than several perhaps big names. And yeah, four but, of them were uh, game-winning points too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he yeah, actually I, he generated more shots, shot attempts than Barry did. Um, Barry generated more quality. Like the, Barry's expected goals was higher, but um, you know, just to be able to be on a par with someone like Barry, that's you know, granted, Barry kind of tailed off towards the end of that series. Um. Because uh, obviously that was something that San Jose wanted to stop. 
Um, but it just it it shows that when a, a guy can come directly out of college into a playoff situation and he's able to, you know, show himself in that league. I mean, you know, you got something really good. And I thought he held up fine with the physicality. Like that one time he handled hurdled in the corner, which is just great. Yeah, his physicality is fine. His positioning, not as fine. Yeah. I, I think it's, it, and it's not, some of it is positioning. I think a lot of it is the kind of moves that NHL players can put on somebody, and it's just not something that he's seen before. Yeah, yeah. and then what happened in, um, I, I think it was a goal maybe in game six, where uh, he was kind of containing a Sharks player wide, and the Sharks player changed speed on him like three times. And, yeah. and got in enough to actually get a shot off where McCarr is fast enough, he could have kept him outside. Right. Saving on yeah, Meyer, and I he did exactly okay there. there. He he didn't he didn't let him completely buy him at right. least. I mean, and, and, so, I mean, that was the play where they conceded a goal because Grubauer makes a makes a poke that was maybe not yeah, the right that time was and, something. And Landis yeah. doesn't have time to adjust to where the puck goes after the puck, so he skates through it, and like that was just a mess so all around. But I mean. That's a play Mac- where maybe this time next year McCarr contains Timo Meyer to the corner. Yeah, I right. think McCarr made an interesting point was that in the NCAA, the rules for how much you can get away with are different. And and that was hard for him because I, I think he even said, like, he, he, he asked, like, how much can I get away with? Like, that Benner is trying to t- also trying to tell him, like, you could do a lot more. Don't worry. You're not going to get called. But in the NCAA, they're a lot pickier about stuff like Go that. Go ahead, hit so, guys in the head. They really yeah. don't care about that here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's definitely something A-okay. that... Yeah, I mean, just the fact get. that we're nitpicking his game this much shows yeah. just how good he's yeah, been. Yeah, he, he, he was. He, and my question to you guys is, how much of a difference did he make? Do they oh, get I think to... he made a big difference. Do they get to the Sharks series without him? Do they get to yeah. Game 7 without him? Yeah. I think they make it to I, the Sharks. Game 7, maybe not. I don't know, because, like, you know, Game 1 against Calgary was a lot more even than the score would suggest. And and Game 2, Colorado played really well, uh, better than the score would suggest. And then, you know, when they added Kale McCarr, they added a new look to the back end that made them dominant. So I don't think they beat Calgary in five, but they make it out of that series for sure. Well, you got to take, I mean, Sam was lost after game two. So oh, that's true too. You yeah. know, that was more of a substitution and having Sam them would have been back by like game five as well, though. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, that, that's understandable, definitely... but taking Sam's place like he did in the Calgary series, um, I think that made it, easier on on several levels just because you know he he wasn't just sort of inserted like what do we do with this guy it's like you know all right you know sam's gone you got to basically do his job i mean i can do that i guess i guess it's less about sam and more about staring down the prospect of playing barbario back there (laughs) yeah right Um, but i think having them both in the shark series um you know, I don't know if they would have gone seven without them. You know, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But, I, you know, he, I, I think he definitely was a factor that was a, a big positive. Yeah, it, they were definitely rolling in the Calgary series, and that's when McKinnon and Rant and the big guys were were dominating. 
but but yeah, like you say, him replacing Sam, maybe that made a difference. But it, it is an interesting question just because there were a lot of people that didn't think they should insert him for whatever reason. And, you know, can a guy like that make that big of a difference? I, I think he did. I don't know. I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but I I definitely think that he made them noticeably better. Yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> I I think it's very tough for even one player to make a difference that's that's really noticeable, you know, unless you're a McKinnon level. Um, so it's you know it's it's uh, you know I don't think they would have been like you know swept in four if McCarr hadn't come in or anything like that, but. Um, you know, it, it, it just, he made things easier. He, he made it easier for the avalanche to succeed with his contributions. And, you know, that's the best thing you can say about a young player coming in like that. Well, McCarr's skill set includes zone exits. And what's the one thing Colorado can't do against San Jose is exit the zone and move through the neutral. So like we didn't see the avalanche in this series without Kale McCarr. So it's really hard to kind of say exactly what his difference was that he made, but you can imagine that not having one more person who can clear the zone and move into the offensive zone, that's a big difference. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, think that... if we had a lot of, like, um, Cole with Nemeth in that series, Ugh. which, you know, that that's probably, you know, I don't know, like, it, it was probably heading towards they would have kept Cole with EJ and put Sam with Nemeth anyway. Even though that that's probably not a great idea, um, but I, I still think that Cole and Nemeth would have been together more than they were. Even though you know they still managed to find some shifts together, which again, not a great idea. Um, and something that Abs needed so so much is someone to get a shot through, and it creates chaos. And Makar so like he hasn't even really opened up all of his talents yet, like his speed, his own sh- shooting and even playmaking but it was just the part about him being able to get his shot through and it, it in such a way that it just it created those kind of rebound chances that the abs never have yeah, he understands how to shoot it at pads instead of at the crest <laughs> <laughs> well, he's also good at looking defenders off um you know, I'm not saying he makes no look shots or no look passes all the time, but it, you know, he does look off defenders really well, sort of like looking to the right of the net and then passing it to the left kind of thing. And that, you know, yeah, his, that helps his a lot passes because, from like the half wall blew me away, man. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's something that like he kept seeing like Z and EJ and Cole kept firing it into the, the defenders' pads. And it's like they, you know, they don't have that skill to be able to look the defender off and, and, you know, make a play where they're not looking. And, you know, it's like having another guy that, that is able to do that along with Barry and Sam, um, that just makes them more dangerous in the offensive zone. So let's, let's look at the top line because at the end of the series, the three-headed monster line was put back together. And because none of them were 100%, except for McKinnon before he broke himself, that that's probably the right call, just because on their own they may not bring enough to be as effective as we need them to be. The result was that Miko Rantanen gets fourteen points in twelve games, six goals and eight assists. Nathan McKinnon gets six goals and seven assists of his own. Gabe Landeskog three goals and five assists, and he was fucking cursed as well. He was he could not get a puck through a goalie to save his life, except for the bad one. 
That's why I felt like he was going to score in overtime because he was just so due. Yeah. <laughs> but like the as, as hurt as they were and as much as we kind of turned on using them as a line with this roster as currently built, they were really effective in the playoffs and they were a major factor in the Avalanche going as far as they did. Absolutely. I mean, we had talked about the Calgary series already. They were just absolute monsters in that one. Um, in the Sharks, the injuries did catch up to them some. I think especially Rantanen. I mean, I know he scored that tip-in goal, but the last three games against the Sharks, he was struggling. Yeah, in, but In Game it, 6, you can see him physically not able to turn. Yeah. But like you said, you know, they're so good that even when they're battling that, Landeskog gets an overtime goal. Rantanen gets a tip-in goal in Game 7. That's just how good they are. And I think the Sharks... I'll give them credit in this series. They knew how to shut players down that they wanted to. Yeah, Nathan McKinnon specifically had a really rough time with the back half of this series. Um, I mean, the Sharks kind of figured out a game plan, which is there are always three people within reach of Nathan McKinnon. If he's not pissed off by the time the second period ends, you haven't done your job. Because an angry Nathan yeah. McKinnon is a little less effective than a confident Nathan McKinnon. And yeah, that, that that's the one player. area that McKinnon, I think, can learn from in these playoffs, for sure. Is He's got to keep himself a little bit more even keel when things like that happen, because he absolutely has the ability to beat that when he's playing his best. It was a comment that Friedman made when he was on Altitude Radio that that when he shows his frustration, the the other team knows that they're getting to him, and they feed into that. I don't know that it's that so much as it is that when McKinnon gets frustrated, he tries to do things that aren't there. Like he he just tries to force stuff, you know. Yeah. And and, and there's some play like sometimes that's gonna work, but like most of the time it's not. And when you're mostly forcing it, then you're mostly turning it over. Because, I mean, they, they spent all of Game 6 and 7 with McKinnon basically triple-covered, and that's tons of space for Rantanen and Landeskog that they just couldn't seem to find a way to use. Which is yeah. tough when you have a player that can use his will and his power and speed to make a difference. But to find that line where sometimes too much is too much, but a lot of times it works. Well, and tough. I mean, this is getting into what if and wonder category so don't take it too seriously but what if mckinnon was put on a line with someone a little bit healthier could they have done that much more to get into a spot to help mckinnon out of those situations i don't know i mean i was honestly surprised they didn't go back to the kerfoot idea in especially in game seven when mckinnon came back i would have like i I don't. I was. I was surprised at that that they didn't go back to that because even yeah, Rantanen gets the tip in goal, but as far as creating stuff, he was just he couldn't move enough to be effective. And Max, one point that got taken away was a pass to Colin Wilson, not to the big guys. Right. So I think yeah. also part of it was Soderberg declining. I don't know if that's a talking point that we'll get to or not, but it sure will be. We can do it right now if you want. It's. He he was starting to get less and less minutes. I mean, we look we look at the box score so. <laughs> every I well I anyway I look at the box score after every game every single game. So when someone's playing and you also understand games are different this or that, but you can tell when somebody 
is not getting the minutes that they normally would have. And Soderberg was one of them for sure. Carl Soderberg played in all 12 games, two points, both assists, eight penalty minutes. I mean, he was he was brutal. We talk about Kerfoot and his lack of production, but you can say, okay, well, here's all these good things that he did. And with Soderberg, not nearly as many good things underlying that lack of production at all. There was the time that he put his own goal out. Yeah, there's a time he removed his own goal from the goal, and there was a couple of times (laughs) the puck went through the goalie's legs and wide. That's about all I can I can find for Carl. So I'll let Earl do the rest. Um. Yeah. All right. I, I I'm sure we've all noticed that he was dragging his right foot like even a month ago. So it's like he you know he's obviously been a little gamey since since probably early February, maybe even. Um. But the and thing the is, it didn't help. Yeah. Um. But, you know, he played more than any other forward outside of the top three guys. So, you know, maybe his minutes were, were curtailed a bit, but they, you know, they still played him a lot. He was still the fourth forward. And he created a lot of chances. He just didn't bury him. Like his individual expected goals were actually better than Miko. And, and you know, there he was between Miko and Gabe as far as that goes. So I mean, he was creating a lot of good shots. They just weren't going in. But and I you think can that, say that yeah. for the whole team. Um, the Avs really did not capitalize on the chances that they had compared to the Sharks. So it's you know it's not just Carl. There were a lot of people that are in that same boat. There but, are, but Carl and Kerfoot were driving that train. Uh, right, I mean, why... it was a lot more in the cursed category for me. Yeah, I agree. But but the reason why I even bring it up is because. That was kind of the quote-unquote second line with Miko and Carl, and I guess Wilson was there most of the time. Right. But when you can't play Carl as much as maybe you want to, then that also kind of forces a decision to put Miko back on the top line. So I didn't have so much of an issue with they put that line back together because that's what they always did, I think. I think in this case, you do kind of want to be aggressive doing that. I mean, what you want to do is exactly what happened with Tyson Jost. You yeah, want to see more opportunity for someone like that, and he excelled in that chance. Yeah, that's that's my next topic there, Tyson Jost. Three goals and one assist, which were basically all within, like, three games. Even though he never saw really a huge increase in minutes, but it wasn't near the he end of the series. He didn't have to play with like, Gabe Bork yeah. every time. He yeah, exactly. That's Bork. what I was going to say, is that his at least his line mates were upgraded and and he was rewarded with actually scoring. Yeah, I, I thought Tyson Jost played his best hockey of the year by a wide margin this whole second round. Easily. Yeah, even when he wasn't scoring, like he was having a positive impact on the game. Like even when he was on the fourth line between Bork and Broussard, we were going, "All right, let's let's give Tyson Jost somebody who can score. Come on. Let let's go." He deserves and it. And I guess that poses the question for the future is what do you do with him? Do you give him another upgraded spot in the lineup based on what he's shown the latter part of the season? I mean, you can't keep him on the fourth line at least. No, (laughs) no. That was, that was always ridiculous. I never supported that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, 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 I didn't think he was going to become a center 
I guess he is now. Um, I I don't know whether, you know, I I don't know whether they're going to think of him as sort of the the third center behind Carl and Mac, or whether they're going to think about maybe putting him with, you know, putting him on Carl's line, maybe. On the abs, everyone's a center. It doesn't matter. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. Even Sheldon Dries. No, let's not go there. (laughs) He's not a center. Um. You know, I don't think like all right. Say you know you want to keep Gabe and Land Gabe and Mac together, and, and maybe put Miko on another line to sort of spread out the scoring a little bit, like you should do. Um, you know, maybe they try him out where Kerfoot was for a lot of the end of the season, put him with those guys. I, I just yeah, which is I, interesting. I think they got You'd burned by overestimating his ability at the beginning of last year. So you know, I don't know if they're going to be a little gun shy about doing that again. I think. Probably the best thing for Jost and the team going forward is to put him in that third center slot behind Carl and Mac. Right, give him a role. That's the whole first half of the season. Jost was just in this, what am I supposed to be doing? And no one really had an answer situation. Well, they, I mean, they had a role for him. They want him to be the second scoring line guy. And, you know, it's like they put him with Comfort and, and Kerfer and said, hey, it's three sophomores. What, what could go wrong? You know, and it, <laughs> <laughs> but but the role work. they wanted him to play there initially was this physical grinder type that he just didn't have the strength for yet. I yeah, think if you yeah. put him on a second line with like a real free agent and you have a real actual scoring line, not the frat line that you think is a scoring line, that might be a difference. And, and we saw this when he went to the AHL, where he excels is handling the puck along the half wall and being able to distribute or shoot from there which it, it was hard for him in the start of the year. Admittedly, he was pretty weak on the puck. But once he kind of started figuring things out, it was clear that he was way more effective there than digging in deep and just getting beaten. Right. He, he was awful down deep, and that never really changed. Um, but this So was... it sounds like he basically needs a, he needs a Colin Wilson on his line. Yeah, you, you know, want to talk about like your that. hero Colin Wilson while we're at it? He's my hero. Because um, I didn't include him yeah, on my I mean, list, but he was he was four goals, four assists. Yeah, of, of all the should have been five big playoff guys the Avs picked up, he was the one that actually did the thing. So that was well, good. He he's the, the one. I think he's the one that greatly benefited from Miko because he figured out just go to the net, put your stick on the ice, and Miko will find he you. Did. I don't know that he made a lot of individual plays, but that, yeah, you no, need yeah, those guys though. You need players that can play with players like Miko. Yeah. I mean, Willie I has just, a lot of skill as that bump guy in the slot. I mean, and that's something the abs don't use very much and we hate it because they, you know, they're such a perimeter team, but you know, it's like Wilson is really good as that bump guy in the middle. And like, they're trying, you know, I know they kind of want comfort to be that at some point and he's okay sometimes. Um, but it's like, you know, Wilson is just a lot more experienced at that. And, you know, he can put the puck in the net consistently. Um, he's not irreplaceable to me, but... No, not at all. But I'm just saying, like, that's the kind of guy they need. Then, then yeah, he at least showed up. I would say he's the least replaceable of those type of guys that the Avs have. Yeah. He would be less replaceable if he could stay healthy in the regular season. True. Or if he, he wouldn't disappear for like an entire yeah. month. And that's the well, it's not just that. It's like in the even in the playoffs, it's like you'd have a great game, disappear for two games, good game, disappear, good game. You know, 
that's tough. And it, you know, it's like no one's consistent. So it's, you know, that that's, I'm not really tooling on him for that, but it's just, um, when he's, when he does disappear, he really disappears. And that's, that's sort of his major flaw. Let's round out this kind of middle six conversation with uh, JT Comfer, who, while the Avalanche did play an awesome game six, it was his goals that basically won game six. And he I, had a, just a really great series against San Jose. I I think game six is really well. And he had that really past Joe's, but I think, I think he was pretty invisible other than game six, which of course he went beast mode and that, that, where he almost hit Carlson and crashed into the boards and everyone thought that was like the spark plug of the game. I thought that was a little absurd. Yeah, I thought that was, it was weird. It was more <laughs> funny that he almost took himself out trying to hit somebody. I mean, but... if he actually hit Carlson, he was getting a charging penalty. So. <laughs> it's probably but a good idea. Take, but... It's the playoffs. Charging's legal. From the rest of that game, he really was the, that whole game. And, and he was rewarded for it, and that's fantastic. But he is, has the same things happen to him that people love to complain about Kerfoot and complain about Wilson for. He definitely disappears. And he doesn't just disappear and do nothing. Like, when he disappears, sometimes he even does bad things. I don't yeah. know about that. Well, where he he's does. not good defensively. Yeah, where he's turnovers in the defensive he, zone. Like I'm, I'm not saying oh. he's great, but he's always at least bringing, like, a bit of an edge to his game, at least. I think he was uh, always more adver- advertises even more edgy than he really is. But I'm not trying to say this to complain about Comfort. I just think a lot of the depth and it, what you would expect that they they have good games, bad games, games you don't notice them, but his good games certainly made a difference. Yeah. I mean I, I, th- say, I don't think it, I think his Calgary series was better. But I will say, oh, game I mean, pretty much everyone in the Calgary had. series was better, yeah, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think he's developing into the role of a, a solid third liner for the Abs that we want him to be. And you know, I again, like you're saying, I don't think the consistency's ever going to quite be there that he can really be on the second line. But he's a solid piece for the Abs. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just I see him on par with Kerfoot and. A lot of people love to complain about Kerfoot. Well, Comfort's more of a shooter, so when you when he does something good, you notice it because he's usually scoring a goal. When Kerfoot's doing something good, he's creating a goal, but he just gets the fake points credit for it and not the hey, <laughs> Kerfoot actually like created this goal. I but mean, I Comfort think... didn't go pointless for like a two month span, but he also scored less than Kerfoot, so right. <laughs> So this is the last playoff subject that I have. Maybe you all have others that you may want to get to before we move on. But Philip Grubauer has a 925 save percentage in the playoffs. That's pretty stout. He also records a shutout, finishes with a 2.3 GAA, which is a not very good stat, but does exist. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could really ask more from him. I, there are a couple of goals that you'd like. I'm sure he would like back in the San Jose series, but... He was great. I, you know, sometimes it takes an absurdly hot goalie to go all the way, but he was good enough for the abs at very least. Yeah, I don't ever feel like he stood on his head or stole a game, which I know a lot of people wouldn't even want to win that way. But, you know, he... hey, if you're sitting there in the third round after one of those, I think you wouldn't complain. Yeah, his, but... his game that he stole was uh, the game five loss to me. <clears throat> yeah. 
But he was solid. He did his job. He gave them a chance to win. I think that's all you could really ask for. Can't I thought really he was fairly for... mediocre. I didn't. I. I, I, <clears throat> I know I'm in the the big minority here, but I don't think he was really all that good in the Shark series. I, I think you in the Calgary series he was good. Um, you know, it's just you look at a lot of things, and I know it's you know things like save percentage and, and goals per expected goal or. or not just goalie things, but they, you know, those numbers weren't that great. And but what what would have being better looked like? I mean, it would have been pretty close to perfection. I don't think so. I mean, it's just he, you know, he let in a lot of goals. <laughs> but like, you know, I know that. Think about the four three win against San Jose. Like two of those goals didn't matter. Yeah, um, I'm just saying that. You know, statistically, he didn't look that great i know that he played well enough to get them to a game seven that probably should have you know been a lot closer um i just you know i, I think he's going to learn a lot from this because he obviously learned something from being yanked in the first round last year so i'm not you know i'm not saying this is something that's going to be a bad thing going forward i, I think he's going to take this and go with it well, yeah. I still don't think I don't. He's I don't, I don't look at his performance as... against the Sharks and just say like, "All right, he was really good," or you know, he was exactly what they need. I think, like I said, I think he was solid. I think it gave him a chance to win. I think he did about what you would expect. I, I still don't think he's going to be as good as Varley was. I don't know about maybe right now this second if maybe he's the better goalie, but I think. Let's put I it this way. Are overall, you comfortable with him being a real starter next season? Yeah, yeah. He he did enough over right. a long enough stretch that I think you can feel confident in calling him I a mean, starter. I mean, I think his play down the stretch was a lot better than he played in the playoffs. And well, that's, yeah. what, but that was know, that's what gets me excited about next year. I, to me, <laughs> yeah. how he played down the stretch, that was unsustainable. It yeah. was, but it does show that he's capable of those God mode stretches. Right. We're not um, expecting you know, it, to go beat God mode that he for can, two games, right? No, that's it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you know it's like on a streaky team like the Avs, he can help them sustain those six, seven, eight game winning streaks, right? And yeah. I, I think that helps because he's just streaky along with everyone else. And <laughs> I, I've said this before, but I think the Sharks' <laughs> game plan kind of takes advantage of the weakest parts of Groob's game as well. So I think that hurt him a little bit, even though I I think he played better than Earl. But I I can see where Earl's coming from on a couple of the goals for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's just him because, you know, I I don't think the defense really played very well. And, and, you know, if if you just sit there and think about it, um, you know, it's like there were a lot of oopsie moments and just in general, they had a tough time against what the Sharks were doing. And, you know, some of that is just, you know, being a little inexperienced and not used to to going against a, a heavy cycle team like that that's you know used to just plowing over people i'm glad uh, he never had like a trash game you know one yeah. where it's just where mike smith probably... gives up six goals yeah we, yeah, never, we, we never, never saw right. varley in the playoffs and that's that's good yeah it is it means Grubauer never got the yank. I mean, now just yeah, just you, you don't need your goalie to win the Conn Smythe to win the Stanley Cup. Anti Niemi won a Stanley exactly. Cup. Exactly. You you need good enough, and there's there's without question Grubauer was good enough. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's especially true for a team like the Avs. Like if you know, if someone's going to win the Conn Smythe, we all know who it's going to be. And Gabriel Bork, <laughs> maybe. Um, but you know, I, I think the way that that the Avs are built, even though I really like their defense, and I think it's a lot more solid than it's been, you know, since you know the '90s. Um, they're they're going to live and die with how they can just destroy teams yep. offensively. They win well, games I, by scoring goals. They don't also, choke teams out. I also think the Avs need good goaltending. They absolutely do. I, the team cannot survive long term without good goaltending. Right. No, but I mean, you don't need you know you, you don't need what Patrick Wall was looking for in the miracle year. Right. You know, someone that that has you to stop impossibly good goaltending yeah. before this year. Right. You, <laughs> you don't you need don't, a guy that has to have fifty saves to win you a game. Yeah. You you don't require great. Yeah. That's that's my point. You need everyone needs good goaltending, but you don't require great goaltending. Now, if they can just I beat still that think they need a t- out of them, we'll be <laughs> I, think, I still think if the Avs are yeah. going to be very good long term, they're going to need very good goaltending. I I think that was true this will. year, I mean, but it's... every year it gets a little bit less. You know, we have Gerard now, we have Makar now, we have people in the pipeline, whether it be Timmins, Malosh, or whoever we draft this year. We are improving our defense to better than it's ever been this decade, and it's still getting better. So next time, I yeah, still I think the forwards. I, I still, I think yeah. The Calgary season. I, I think the Cal- Calgary series. God, we said series and season so much here. Um, <laughs> the Calgary series showed what the Avs can do when they really buy into a suppression by a possession type offense. And obviously, you're not going to be able to kill people like they killed Calgary all the time. But um, I, I think the way that they played in that series should really show them that, you know, it's like you can really dominate shots. And maybe you're not getting the quality that you used to when you're sort of more focused on quality. <clears throat> uh, but when the other team isn't shooting, that's a good thing for you. Right. They're, I mean, for me, they're going to need more structured defense from their forwards, too. Yes. They do yeah. absolutely. Well, they, that's what they had in that series. That's why they were able to, you know, outshoot Calgary by right. There wasn't 40%. all these YOLO breakouts. The passes yeah. were one pass and out of the zone every time. And they didn't allow Calgary to enter the zone, and I think that's really key. I mean, it's like that's something they just couldn't do against San Jose because San Jose is able to either bull rush their way through. Or they can use speed with a couple of their guys, you know, the the younger guys like Timo and LeBanc. You know, they have some speed enough to, you know, give any defenseman problems. So, you know, defending against an either or like that is is really tough. Mm-hmm. So it's like they couldn't just stack up the blue line. And yeah, right, that's where the the offensive the forward structure rather kind of fell apart on them they yeah. made the adjustments at times but there were a lot of periods where the forwards were nowhere to be found and the d needed help yep that did yep. that did happen a lot uh, but, but yeah you mentioned the bank and shout out to that guy he is he can play some hockey yeah he's really good shout out to sixth round sixth round picks hey we're gonna get one of those so yeah all right so Let's uh, let's talk about the whole damn season, and then we'll go out for summer vacation, because hockey season is too goddamn long, and I'm exhausted. Um, 
what were your favorite things this season? I'm not looking for like I'm looking for moments like either on ice or off, but but you know actual things happening like plays and decisions. Not you know the time they won a bunch of games or that they did a certain thing all all year long a certain way. Like what are some of your favorite moments from the season? I think I always remember the game against Winnipeg where they clinched playoffs and. <laughs> they went to overtime and they were celebrating the, before overtime. <laughs> the goal that drained Soderberg of all of his life force. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that was the last time he scored. <laughs> <laughs> Might be the last time ever. Never know. Um, but for me, it's hard to remember like individual good moments because. It, I, yeah. I think I always remember the season for the adversity, and I don't think that's necessarily a negative, but to being honest, it's going to be so hard to remember, because I was even trying to think of good games, good goals, and it's just, it's so hard to think of them. I have three moments. Well, this uh, was made for Ruta. Yeah, I, I'm the guy who looks at all the highlights 18 times a game, so... <laughs> Uh, the first one, earliest in the season, was, I forget what team it was against, but Miko Rantanen walks in along the blue line with four defenders on him, dekes through two players' sticks twice, and then feeds Mac on the half wall who rips it home. And that was the first play of the year where I was like, okay, this <laughs> top line is special. I don't know um, if it's the same one, but that reminds me of when Miko went through the whole Boston team. He like he toasted Bergeron first. They went through like three other guys, and that's when it was like, "Yeah, Miko's having a season." <laughs> <laughs> when he was on top of the the leaderboard for the league for like two months. Yeah, and then the so second one just exploded. Yeah, it, it was much later in the season. I think it was against Nashville um, when Sam Gerrard went all the way down deep right on Rene, and he does this stutter step and hold the puck, and the defenseman's just gone, and Landy's sitting there with a wide-open net, like, <laughs> incredulous to Gerrard still having this puck and just, like, touches it into the net. Oh, yeah, I remember that because... You thought he almost waited too long. Yes. Like, yeah. he missed it. But no, he was waiting for the... And he also did something crazy, like, passed it through the defenseman, like, under his stick mm -hmm. and through him. And, like, yeah, Landy was just sitting there like, holy shit, here's the puck. And he's done that several times from stuff from Gerard. So it's like, dude, you have Gerard and Makar now. The entire team needs to learn how to get ready for crazy shit. <laughs> Be ready for it. Have your stick on the ice. It's gonna happen even more now. They've had a little bit of a preview of that from both Alexander Kerfoot, who is always the smartest guy on the ice because he went to Harvard, and Miko Rantanen, who both have, will just put pucks through holes that you didn't know were there. Yeah. yeah. So that's got to be a lesson in camp. It's like these guys are gonna do crazy stuff. It's it's you weirdly reminiscent. Of the 90s, where everyone on the ice is just waiting for Forsberg to do something stupid like that. <laughs> and then he does. <laughs> um, and then the third one, for one off the ice, uh, Sam Gerrard singing opera at the like fan meet and greet was gold. <laughs> uh, I've, I think a lot of people in this community are desperate for more unscripted content like that. And the I and um, 
altitude yeah altitude could do a much better job of providing that type of content instead oh, yeah, of there's... scripted garbage that they put out yeah they're so scared of spontane spontaneity like these guys do have a personality i know what they do that's why we, we, we look to forward it. to them to the uh to the Mile High Gala, like, every season. And that's, like, they, they give us about a five-minute video of Tyson Berry walking around with the, with other players making dad jokes, and we're like, ah, it's the best thing all year! Because they <laughs> they don't market their players. They, they don't yeah. let them show that personality through. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, the thing Lauren did with the, the game show when they had Graves oh, and Barbs so and, and Perfect and, and uh, Comfer, I mean, that was, you know, that was wacky, but it was fun. Well, but they, you I, know, more stuff like that and probably shorter. <laughs> less scripted, though. Less, less. Yeah. Put a lot of work into that, but then it pissed me off when I... It was rigged! Like, what's fun? What's the fun in that? <laughs> <laughs> like, you literally can't find two other guys that know each other well and play the rigged. game. I know. <laughs> and play it just... To me, that speaks to the absolute control and inability to let spontaneity happen is that you had a fucking scripted rigged game show. You couldn't <laughs> find two other guys that were Maybe good that was friends. the irony. I, no. <laughs> it, I, it's just sad that they can't do more content. I'm tired of watching Alex Kerfoot with a retainer or whatever it is in his mouth try to say <laughs> yeah. what. That's so dumb. Like, that, it, that not only bad. is it dumb, they play the clip 80 times a week and it's like Something, anything new, please. Because they get all their content on media gross. day. Yeah, it, it is pretty nasty. Um, my my favorite moments, I think, are all off ice. Um, my my, I I know that everything fell apart right after this, but my number one moment from the season is still Gabe Landeskog's mic drop post game interview, where Lauren says, "You know, is this the best line in the National Hockey League?" And he thinks about it for a minute, says, "Should I say it?" And he goes, "Yeah, I'm going to say it." And yeah, we are, and just skates off. That is my number one moment from the season. <laughs> we we have been waiting for an avalanche team with like skill and swagger for so long and then finally to get it at this point was just like that was number one for me um <laughs> number two for me is a shout out to uh, gregory yens and the miko rantanen song yeah that oh, was how fun. could we forget yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the follow-up the gabe landeskog song which is somehow better um also, I mean, I'm going to break my own rule here. This isn't exactly a moment, but Grubauer shut out against Nashville, which basically said, okay, we can still do this in the regular season. We pointed to that in our regular season wrap show. Um, yeah. But I, it's worth pointing to again. Yeah. I'm going to pick... I, I just have one, because you guys have covered a bunch of mine already, but um, my, my favorite moment of the season was probably, and this is some recency bias, but it was probably Kale McCarr's seventh shift of his NHL career where he scores his first NHL goal. Oh, that was and so it was, good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like after, you know, it, you know, it's a labor of love to try and watch college prospects play during the season. And, you know, you try to explain to other fans, you know, like, this kid's really good. I mean, he's going to walk in here and he's going to be good. Don't worry about it. And just to watch him come onto the ice and throw that one in the net, you're just like, oh. It really yes. was the, the biggest reward. <laughs> it was just, like, we've just been waiting and waiting. It's like, it's like a present that you're waiting to open on Christmas morning. And then 
it ended up being better than what you had anticipated and dreamed about, which is, that's just crazy because when you're talking about prospects, you're always kind of dreaming and hoping for, you know, the greatest story, the best moment or whatever, but for the reality to even be better than the dream. No matter how sure you are that the kid is insanely good, you'd never really know until you see it in the NHL. Right. It it, didn't take long to see it. (laughs) And it, and it's like, you know, it's like everyone looks back on the Calgary series like, oh, man, we had that from puck drop. You know, we, we just killed those guys. But it's like, you know, early, early in game three like that, it's like, you know, the series was 1-1. You know, I, I was fairly confident that the that the Avs were going to take that series. But it's, you know, it's like it was still in doubt. And it's like you, you, you have a game like that. It's, you know, everything starts off on the right foot like that. And you're just like, <laughs> these guys are not stopping us. so it's just it it was that was a wonderful moment on on a lot of levels and it just you know it it showed both the past and the future coming together as both some really good stuff i think i'll remember the first turn and burn that the first shift that that gerard and mccarr really two sam spins about 12 passes between (laughs) them walking the blue line and then that's also when it's like this this is gonna be like this isn't just once here guys this is like forever yeah <laughs> I, I do feel like we need a separate moments category for the playoffs because mckinnon's overtime goal as well every overtime yeah. goal like, those aren't fair it's but cool mckinnon's that, was like a work of art it's yeah. cool that mckinnon ranton and ann landeskog all had one yeah i definitely because landeskog hadn't had one before and he's had a playoff series before so i think the ranton one was the one that kind of made the most difference but i don't know they're all good overtime goals are i know those are all default moments um (laughs) let's let's turn the the opposite because like we said at the very top of the show in the cold open like this was a streaky inconsistent very season Let's talk about your least favorite parts. And Earl, I know you wanted to kind of look back and gaze at the dead winter months. So let's let's do that. I just, you know, I'm still a little bit in the dark. I've I've gone over the numbers. I, I, I've looked at everything, and I know Rudo's broken down every single game. And, and <clears throat> I'm still just not that clear about how a team can play that bad for two months <laughs> and come back and look good and then great during the stretch and then kill Calgary and take the San Jose Sharks to a game seven. And it's just, when you, when you look at what we just went through in the playoffs and sort of teleport yourself back to, you know, like January 1st, let's say, and it's just, I mean, you can't imagine feeling this way about the season. And and it, it just bugs me that I don't understand why yet. Hopefully. I was looking at it last night. They have won seven games in 32. It's just to think about that. That's just... Don't overthink it. Two 840 <laughs> save percentages. Yeah, it's, it's not it that was, it hard was more for me to wrap that, my head though. around that. Like, the, that, those, those numbers of, you know, how many games they didn't win, because I'm the one who will be, okay, they, have, they haven't won in a while, so let's see. How long has it been since the first of the month they have won exactly two games? Okay, time for the middle finger posts. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more that, uh, even though certainly having no goaltending didn't help, but it it was just like they just completely 
was like it, reminiscent of the yeah. 48 point team. It was just, they just couldn't do anything. And it was like, you could see when they were starting to get out of it, like February, they were starting and that's when they got the, the overtime points on the East coast road trip. And, they're they starting finally to fix the penalty kill after the Toronto <laughs> massacre. Yeah, and, and Varley's save percentage normalized. Like all the narratives that we can come up with all kind of came together and got back to normal for the for the last two months of the season. I, I think it does show that they kinda ride the emotional roller coaster as much as we do as well. You know, when things I, go wrong they struggle to dig themselves out. Well for me it was like December was you, you could look at it and just say, ah, it's like a bad stretch, you know. They hadn't really hit rock bottom, but I think those of us that were paying attention closely were really kind of, like, sounding the alarm that, like, yes. this isn't just a matter of keep yeah. doing the same thing, things will get better. Like, I even wrote an article about, it made me so mad what they did right around the Christmas break, how they didn't call anybody up, they didn't have any extras, they were just playing with fire, that's when they had to put Frank in, they didn't start him. Like, there was literally, like, ten wrong decisions the organization made in one week. And it almost cost them the season because then they lost to Chicago and Arizona, who were in the bottom five of the league at the time. It was just unacceptable. Then they come back from Christmas. They lose to Vegas. Everyone's like, okay, that you know, they're, they're a tough team anyway. They're tough to beat after a break. And then they continue on, and they don't win after that. I think they lost to Chicago again. Mm -hmm. And it's like, <laughs> here's a huge problem right right now. Yeah. And yeah. it took them about a, a month after that to really realize it, that they had to start yeah. doing Yeah, the response was different. just totally inappropriate. It, it's <laughs> like it snuck up on them because, you know, even in mid-January, because everyone in the Central was just horrendous, the Avs were still... In the playoffs, I think it was even the first wild card spot they were still in. Yeah, yeah, and I remember when they when they lost that. I don't even remember after which game, but I just remember the feeling where it was like, okay, one more loss and you're out, and it and, and they, five and more losses and, and we're still in somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so my least favorite moments are n mostly not tied to this stretch. Um, like my my first one is it was when it was on Twitter. Me and and Cole were like had a brief conversation. We were like, one of us said, this feels really wrong. And this was in mid December. And I asked him, I said, does this feel like a massive collapse to you? Because this was like a massive collapse to me. And he says, it totally does. Like there were, there were a few of us <laughs> who were like, this isn't a small problem y'all. Yeah. Um, which makes it even, even more puzzling that it took the team, the team, the team, the team whose job it is to figure this out. took them another month to start changing things. Exactly. Well, exactly. and it, I respect that because I am a huge fan of procrastination. <laughs> until after you really should have. And this just fits right into my with my fandom of the Avalanche. My my other two bad moments are when they claim Marco Dano and are like, oh, well, that didn't work. Oh. Yeah, that was brutal. No, that's a, oh. Yeah, the, the, the Dano, I don't know. The Dano part to me is just more hilarious than awful. It, to me, it just it just awful. stinks of a real bad process. And, yeah, uh, and then I I don't I mean, think any of us will disagree with my third, which is the uh, their their trade deadline it was not a good yeah. moment. It, it offered them, <laughs> them very little. That was the worst. Yep. I hate trade deadline day. Nothing good ever happens. I'm it's gonna trigger Jackie ever. here, but vodka was a lot more effective. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> 
I, just about anyone was more effective. I mean, I don't remember who had more regular season points: Derek Broussard or Joachim Lindstrom. <laughs> Shout out to Bob in Boulder. Um, but no, the the December was was an absolute catastrophe, and they did, but they did pull it back as really impressive. Um, yeah. The team has a knack for going just far enough to break their fan base before getting it back together. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah it's... and I don't really know what sparked them. Like I said, you could really feel like they're getting better on that road trip, but I don't. I have to look back. Was there any real catalyst to why they got their shit together? I mean, I do think that changing the power play after Toronto probably had a bigger effect than we were thinking. Um, but and I, I think that just carried over into playing better defense, and that magically made the goalies better. If that's what you believe was wrong with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's like Eric Johnson said in his post game after game eighty one. He was like, "Well, you sure can't make it easy on ourselves, can we?" Yeah. Oh, and God, I, will, I can't I... even count how many videos I said that. This year. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that the thing last... is. Anaheim game almost broke them too. Yeah, they they sure bro- both those Anaheim games broke me. And you know, I I have a you know since since I'm a bit older than you kids, I have a little more perspective on what they were like in the '90s. But this was kind of like what they were in the '90s too. It's like they would really cruise and just you know float around for long stretches, and then suddenly when it mattered, they're like, well, I guess we better start doing something about Here's- this. And- <laughs> here's a here's the thing we missed for a negative moment and it's not a moment sorry but 15 overtime losses yeah yeah I, if we're gonna you know, add on moments i'll also add every goal review all season long and yeah, the power play. That, you, that goes beyond the abs that's league-wide <laughs> I think. yeah yeah that overtime that that is something that yeah they're gonna ha- they're gonna need to change moving forward. It's like overtime's a little bit of a coin flip, and there were a few of them where it really could have gone either way. But there were at least like ten where their coverage was just yeah embarrassingly Oops. awful. Like they <laughs> they deserved to lose on those overtimes. Well, hopefully in the but next hey- few days we'll hear that Ray Bennett's moving on, and they're gonna hire someone that ha- has. <laughs> Some idea how to coach offense, and I hear Tim Army needs a job. <laughs> I'd take Tim Army. I would take Tim no. Army's power play over this one in a New York. Tim minute. Army's doing good in Iowa. He's good. He's we, good. See, the, so, the best he's part, undercover. The best part about choosing between Ray Bennett and Tim Army is we don't have to. Yeah. Let's hand out awards to the Avalanche. We'll. Uh, I kind of base them off the NHL awards a little bit, but most of those would be obvious, so I made up some too. Um. This is going to be a short list to choose from. Who is your best forward this season? Everyone's going to say I, McKinnon, so I'll say Ranton. And you know, I was oh, that's pretty much literally what I would say. I'll just say Mac, just because it's true. <laughs> People forget that Ranton led the league in points for like two months. Does his point per game end up better than McKinnon's? It may have, um, but McKinnon ended up with ninety-nine points. Which, yeah, yeah, it's certainly splitting hairs here. Yeah, Our, I'm not, our I'm vote not... is going to remain split between Mac and Miko 2-2. Two to two. I mean, yeah, if you put fine, a gun dude. to my head, I'll pick Mac. It's fine. Well, no one's going to yeah. do that. And, and I'm not one not of the people that says that, that Miko is just a parasite living off Mac's greatness or anything. They're, they're both great players. I just think Mac's just slightly better. I, I think, I think he might be better. better I think Miko's season was better. 
Yeah, I could I could see that, uh, but I really think that Mac and Miko are a little bit better than the sum of their individual performances. Yeah, when you put them together. I agree. Um, yeah. This one may have a little bit more to it. Who do we have for the Avs Norris candidate? Who's the best defender? Sam! Tyson Berry. Duh, Makar. <laughs> <laughs> so if I have to choose from those three... Uh, Kale McCarr gets an incomplete grade, so it's not him. Um, I'm I'm between Barry and Gerard already, because but because their roles are so different. Everyone tries to cast Sam Gerard as this offensive defender, but he just isn't. Not in the NHL. He the job of a defender in the NHL is to possess the puck and put it in the right direction so your forwards can score, and he's amazing at that. And if you, but and he, he played a lot of tough minutes. He had the second most even strength minutes after EJ. He took three penalties. You know, he just makes such a difference. And that's just because he's tiny and he isn't physical. He had some great seven, hits during he, the playoffs. I, I, a lot of people. Sure. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. But these are all areas where Tyson Berry is less good. But then he yeah. comes into the offensive zone and is so productive. Like he... I'll stick up for Barry a little bit because I I really do think that probably starting around when the Avs were turning it around in February and definitely as you neared the stretch run that they made, uh, when they kind of made Barry and Zadorov the top pair, um, you know, he lost a lot of the things that really pissed people off about Tyson Barry. I mean, he, you know, he, he wasn't... definitely put it together starting in like yeah. March. Like I've never seen him play in the defensive zone the way that he did over the last month, plus the playoffs. Um, you know, and, th- and that's the one thing that, you know, we don't need to go into this now, but that's the one thing that would lead me into being more comfortable re-signing him rather than, than trading him away. Yeah, we can. Is because the, he's he's got a more complete game now, and that's really something that we haven't seen, you know, over his you know ten years with the Avs. So that's that's pretty cool. Well, y'all convinced me um, that I can't choose, so I'm gonna pick Kale McCarr. Easy. That, that's fine with me. <laughs> who who is the best role player this season? Who we who man. is our pool of choices? So yeah, a, a, hard. a role man. player would be not a top scorer, not a top defender, and not a goalie. Like is Carl a role player? Or you know, I mean, is uh, is Arroyo that far? Carl as a role okay. player. It's it's between so Conker and Calvert for me. I'm gonna say Mr. Long Beach. Ah, uh, that's a good one too. He is, but he did have four goals yeah, in the regular season. Exactly. Like, I was thinking was about a him too. Playoffs performer for sure. Like, yes, and he's a good. I know it's not all about scoring, and we're not just base, basing. These I off think of they scoring. really missed him on the PK when they broke his foot. I mean, yeah, that the, I think that that stretch showed me that the the PK was you know it was really tenuous to begin with. They made the changes and that worked out, but then they lost Nieto and it started kind of rolling back a little bit too. I mean. For my money, he was their top penalty killer on the year. Um, you know, like Carl was probably better when he was healthy, but I think over the the entire year, um, yeah. Nieto did a really good job there. And and for me, that's an important role. So that, especially that's... when you count his playoffs, I think it's yeah. fair. I, I I'm gonna go with Comfer. I know I'll probably be the only one with him, but. I go with him because not only is he a role player who found his role on the team, 
he's someone who took a solid step this year, and there were a lot of abs that didn't quite take that step, so. I'm still going to vote for Kerfoot. The second most, he had the most points. 40 points. I'd vote for Kerfoot, too. I wouldn't consider him a role player. Yeah, if, if Kerfoot's yeah, a role really player, either. then Carl's a role player, right? Right. Yeah. I... If you'd looked at their time on ice, I bet Kerf had a lot less. He's still a top six scorer, so... Yeah. I'd... No, I mean, then, if, if we're going to include Kerf... With Nieto. I, I think Nieto is, is a very solid player. He's He is a valuable player. See, I think Nieto would win my next award, which is Unsung Hero. Mm. That would be Willie by Miles. Okay. He's yeah. a hero. Yeah, it's probably Willie. <laughs> no, I'm not voting for Willie. <laughs> uh, who who else is unsung that actually played solidly? So Matt Calvert. Nah, Calvert was sung plenty. By the end of the season, he, he was, was oversung. <laughs> by, by the end of the season, Every... he was, but he was still the whipping boy in February. Everyone gets credited. Would Z be an unsung hero? That's also where I'm looking. That's too. valid. Who? Yeah. Who would you say? Zidorov. Big Z. Oh yeah, no, I was thinking about him. I was. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because he's kind of sung a lot, but um, he's, he's sung for his hits. That's a little different. Well, and and that's I mean that's something that you know I I do think puts him in this this category just because you know you think of you know yeah he's out there crushing fools and things like that but. You know, it's like he is a, another young player that did take a step forward this year. Um, he is an you know, important again, it, part it, it, of the team, and I think I think he never gets credit for that. His role on the defense is to prevent entries into the Avalanche zone, and no other Avalanche defender does that. He played a lot in the playoffs too, which he's never going to get credit well, for. I mean, I'll go back to what I said about Tyson Berry. A lot of what happened with, with Berry becoming, you know, basically your number one defenseman for the last month of the year. You know, a lot of that was the gradual transition to, you know, Zadorov being his, his partner rather than Ian Cole. And I think, you know, we saw it last year towards the end of last year with the, you know, the, the good playoff run they had there. I think that prepared them a lot for what they had to do down the stretch and in this year's playoffs. Um, you know, and it's just, it's good to see, you know, even though they kind of douched him into a fifth man role at the beginning of the year. And, you know, it's like, it's expected with when you hire a guy like Ian Cole, I mean, it's just, you know, that, that was his spot, but you know, he learned through the year. I think he's still a little bit dicey in front of the net, but it's not as bad as it has been in, in previous times. So, you know, How I, many I like D-men aren't dicey in front of the net. Right. <laughs> you know, this is like also true. Set terrible example for a youngster like that. What, what do you expect? But, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I like the progress that he made this year and, and, you know, it's, it's good to see a guy that, you know, sort of in the middle of the season, they might've been given up on. Um, you know, come back and look that good. So this doesn't have to be a rookie, but who's y'all's best newcomer to the roster this season? Huh. Makar, but no one was better than Makar, even 10 games. <laughs> By far. Makar's 10 oh. games is better so, than anybody's. That's such an obvious answer that I want to say, let's discount the playoffs and say who's the best newcomer yeah. in the regular season. Yeah. Stuart um. Tyson yeah. Jost 2.0 <laughs> after the Eagles stint. Does that count? No. 
Sure doesn't. It's it, it's really tough because the three guys I'm thinking about are Grubauer, um, Cole, and, and Calvert. And it's like, you know, for each guy, you can make a yay or nay case. And, they, you know, they've both been very good and very bad at points during the season. I don't know if there's enough to make much of a yay case for Cole. Yeah, that's... I don't know. I, I just... I think for Cole, you know, having him be better than sort of what we've had in the past is, is his best attribute. But yeah, I, no, no argument there for sure. He has a share of the dum dums, though. I, it, like everyone Cole else, <laughs> Cole just debated everybody because he was super solid for the first fifteen to twenty games, and then really nope. Was. Yep. I think this for me this goes to Philip Grubauer because even though he was a major factor in it being this tight as well, the Avalanche don't make the playoffs without his stretch at the end of the season. I, yeah, I'm leaning that way myself. Yeah, probably the right answer. Well, let's end with the, the most important trophy of the year, which is, of course, the heart. Who's your Avalanche MVP? I mean, McKinnon. <laughs> if I said Rantanen for the, for the other one, you gotta go McKinnon here. <sighs> I, don't I don't know how you... I'm not hearing any disagreement. I, I I don't know how he didn't get nominated for the real heart, so I don't know how we could douche yeah, him here. Even in the San Jose <laughs> series where we said he got frustrated, that's the little dude who's got three people defending him and is tiring them out. So, And without him I mean, for it, ten minutes, the team falls apart. I mean, that interview yeah. after the seventh game when he's just like, yeah, I came off the ice and they said I had a grade two or three shoulder separation and they just stuck a needle in me and I went back out. And I'm just deadpan like that. <laughs> just looking at him like, <laughs> you I, know, you know I mean, it's like I Gabe is friends. awesome as a leader, but Mac leading like that. But see, <laughs> wow. he knows it. I'll, I'll give it to him just because he, he knows how to be honest. Like some of the quotes that he has, like he, he knows there's no exit interview. He knows there's nothing. He knows that he's going to put it out there because it's the last time they're going to talk to him. <laughs> he knows what's up. I've said this a few times lately, but, but right now, Nathan McKinnon might be my favorite interview in the National Hockey League just because he <laughs> always says something. You're never going to get a canned interview out of Nathan McKinnon. He's going to say something. Even with Pierre. <laughs> I can't say I saw any interview with Pierre because I watched every game the Avalanche played from Sportsnet and not from NBC because Pierre end of sentence <laughs> I'd say I would say that's a good thing but then you won't you won't understand our misery it's good for me because it means I'm not mad at Pierre I but still think Micheletti was worse but it's it's unlucky for everyone else because it means I'm not sitting there coming up with you know different names for Pierre that rhyme with McGuire that was like the most fun I had in the last couple of seasons of watching games on NBC is just coming up with new names for Pierre Maguire. The only Pierre quote you need to remember is that he thinks Ray Bennett is a power play guru. Oh, no, 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 no. This is also one of my favorite moments of the playoffs. So, yes, he had said that about Ray Bennett when they did a regular season game. Then after that, he sat around for a whole week watching the power play. Then he goes, it's awful. I was like, yes. <laughs> Yes. Hey, give them credit. Thank they at Pierre. least learned the players' names by the second <laughs> round. Okay, they weren't calling him Eric Cole anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
we have but yes, I will. I will support McKinnon as MVP. Yeah, but but Ranton is still my top forward, and that's and that's totally fair. The Avs have five impending UFAs this season. Um, we've been going for a while now, so without getting into a lot of debate on them, uh, I just want to know if you think they'll be back and if you think they should be back. Okay. So Wilson's is- the only one worth considering, and I think there's a good chance he comes back. Were you- you we're going gonna, through everybody? We're going to go through everybody just to make sure that oh, nobody gets my forgotten bad. here. And we'll do Colin Wilson first because you're a fucking spoiler. I sure <laughs> am. Yeah, he. I mean, this is the only guy that I think we have more than five seconds of talking about. And I would bring him back. No, you got to do better. You have to do better. Like, yes, you know, the, he had a few hero moments. You look at the bottom line. This is line. the abs scored... in unlimited free agency. 27 points. Are they going to do better than Colin Wilson? Yes. If you can't find better than 27 points, either internally or in free agency, and you know I'm not, we're going to spend all the money and get Panarin and get everybody. We're going to get our wish list. We're going to bring in four guys that score 40, 40 goals, and we're going to be great. But you have to do better than Colin Wilson. You have to. Then, If just- not, then you're not taking the next step. I just don't see him taking a pay cut. I mean, not that it's that big of a deal, but he's already 24th on TSN's top UFA list. So I wouldn't pay him four million again. That's he's over 30. He's injured every year. It's only 3.9. He disappears every year. (laughs) He has a few good moments. He scored 27 points. Earl has talked about this before, and him disappearing is actually kind of a good thing sometimes. (laughs) It is. Because, (laughs) like,. When he gets injured, you get to actually play prospects if the organization makes the right decisions. But yeah, I, we don't if need he to play sixty games. I don't see the downside in that. <clears throat> Staying healthy is also a skill. It's also something you pay for. I, and you know that they won't call an actual prospect up. They will just call up Sheldon Dries. Play I think well, they'll do less different damage problem. by, by re-signing <laughs> Wilson than they, they will trying to fill that role. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have to take a huge pay cut. I'm talking like... He won't take one, and I don't think it's a big deal. No, you can't. If if you we're in the era now... They'll sign him like, for five years. They'll sign him for like two, maybe three. Right. You can't, two, you can't like, just it's... spend four million bucks anymore in a flippant way. I give him Matt Calvert's contract, basically. I, I'm not <laughs> accepting that argument when we're going to argue the entire summer to the penny about some of the contracts for these guys, and we can't just have the oh well, it's four million bucks or three million bucks. No, you can't have that argument anymore. I don't think anyone on the pod has ever argued that <laughs> yeah. aggressively. Look, if they the can contract. find someone that can do Willie's job for two point five million dollars, I am all over it, and. Until I see that materialize, then I'm fine with signing Willie. I think it's a pot. Okay, I think it's a possibility he could come back. But he even told Ryan Clark at the Athletic he hasn't even talked to the Avs. So, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. Oh, they haven't talked to anybody, right? Because they're going to start calling on July one, and then it'll be too late. <laughs> Derek Broussard. Speaking of too late, no, lol, no, no, no. <laughs> Not even for free. Do you think there's any chance they do it? No. no. There is negative 100% chance. I yeah, think there's a chance. Unfortunately, I think there's a chance, but I, no. I really hope it doesn't no. happen. That the, 
the pick that we get back is the fail save. Even if they sat around and thought about it. Because you know, six, yeah, they're just, just as valuable as thirds. Kevin the bank. Nice, but. <laughs> so you've got to. No, Bedner didn't even like him. Come on. I he, I don't I still think he liked him the last two him. games. No, I, mean, I don't think, think I don't think there's a good chance, but I just you know I again I worry that you know the confidence they've gained by going two rounds sort of there's leads to some questionable thinking. He did nothing that, for so long. It would take long. more than questionable thinking there. Yeah, Patrick, it happens. Patrick, <laughs> Patrick no. no. Uh, he, Unless, uh, he's a good player, but we just don't have the room, unfortunately. He's he's yeah. gonna he's gonna need a raise first of all. Second of all, I don't think right, so. I don't think he'll get a raise. They, well, the contract projections say that he will. We'll see. Yeah, slight. I mean, maybe like if I, I mean, I think there's teams out there that will definitely pay him three million bucks, and that's great for him because I, you know, I, I think he's done an okay job, maybe even a good job for what he's been. Um, over his tenure, they got him for free, and you know he put in the he time. He deserves to be an NHL starter at this point, right? You know, it's like yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd love to have a guy like Nemeth for a million bucks as your seventh defenseman, but you know, it's like I don't know why he would want that, and you know, that's just more of a clog. And they've said they've been setting themselves up to say goodbye to Nemeth since the beginning of the year when, Since when they signed they went, him to that one-year deal yeah, they, they <laughs> yeah. almost took him straight to arbitration he signed the one-year deal and he it wasn't was a show pretty... me deal i mean <laughs> a lot of right. times you'll get they a, a show me deal to make sure it was one year <laughs> yeah yeah and then his time on ice was low and you know bender likes him and trusts him a ton but the writing was on the wall he took him out of the lineup from a car and you knew that was somebody that bender does not want to take out of the lineup and it happened anyway sure now with, and with nemeth out of the lineup next season though now we have to figure out what other defenders can kill a penalty well that's some of them are gonna have to start to learn i maybe, think one of them Cole at least maybe two will be 20 years or 21 years old by then yeah <laughs> i think gerard's killing penalties next year for sure he did a little bit yeah he did yeah. a little bit here and there and, and in the playoffs when they didn't have nemeth they needed another defenseman they could stick in, especially if it was Cole or Zadorov in the box, which is not a Happens rare occurrence. A what about Gabriel Bork? Speaking no. of penalty nope. killers? Yep. No. I think no, he'll come you, back for sure. Okay. If, <laughs> you have to be able to replace Gabe Bork. There's like I, zero He's argument. an out for life. The, he's no. not moving yeah. anywhere. Remember, one of he's the questions is, do you think they will be back? No. No. Nope. No. You've Definitely. Got I know that they've appreciated him, but they also, I know they will like to forget that there was a whole month that they decided that they were going to scratch him. You, you have to do better. If, if your argument is that Gabe Bork is so integral to what you're doing as an organization, you're not taking a step forward. Like, this is the time for them to not be sentimental and think about what's actually going to make your team better. If you don't have anybody internal that can do Gabe Bork's job, you feel as an organization. If I'll you can't go out not back. <laughs> in free agency and get better. I mean, ba basically, you don't need to replace him. You need to put people higher in your lineup so that guys like Calvert and Nieto are more in the fourth line Gabe Bork role, penalty killer, role player, etc. 
you you can't you can't be a contender and have somebody that is so limited in your lineup. There's there's, there's just no way. He's he's gotten older now. I know they appreciate what he's done, but he's he's they've got to move he's on. He's just so far below replacement level at this point that you could take a shot in the dark in free agency and get a player that good at minimum. And they'll save themselves the trouble and just sign him instead. I I don't see it. I just don't. <laughs> and now the only conversation here that's interesting to a lot of people is Simeon Varlamov. No, he's not coming it, back, which I, is... Yeah, Grubauer's end of season sealed it, I think. It's I don't know. Right I mean, I, I, I'll have to see what kind of interest there is for him out there because, first of all, he didn't make... He didn't even get a mention in TSN's first... Um, Albeit it's a totally Toronto centric list, but I know because yeah. everyone hates Russians, so that... and and they hate Varley too because he's bad. I hear Columbus has a goalie opening, so we can continue that relationship. It can go the other way for once. A, unless he, he comes put a back bid in on Bob's condo. <laughs> comes back as the backup on dirt cheap. I I don't see it. And... Uh, yeah, I, he doesn't want to be a backup. He's too good to be a backup, regardless of what you think of him. And it's it would be very difficult to have him as a backup. And even if they did, it would be a really short term thing. I would think. We're, yeah, we're With the trash that half the league rolls out in goal, I can't imagine that they're not going to look at Varley as a better option than some of these guys that have been recycled back and forth between the AHL I mean, and the what, NHL. Right, what, what do you see as sort of the, the, the bid offer for Varley right now on the market? His, his value is really hard to kind of guess at. I know. That, that's why I struggle I mean, with it. Even, like, I mean, if you're it's definitely not what he makes now. It's not 5.9, you know? Uh, but it's not that low either. Like, right. I, he and, he and wouldn't how- get less than like 4.5, I would yeah. think. Yeah. I agree with that. I could see four, but I'm thinking more of term here. I mean, what kind of length of term do you think someone's willing to throw down on Varley right now? I mean, there's always someone stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look at Bernie or Steele. Or Koskinen. Jeez. Well, come on. Um, But I think the biggest reason for should not be back for me is that call with if this is Grubauer, then what Colorado need is a backup, and and to me Varlamov is a bad backup. Because yeah, he, he you're just he's not, always been a streaky guy. He needs workload, and if he doesn't get workload, then he struggles. Like he's he's a starter or nothing. Well, and he's earned yeah. that right too. He's he's been a starter in this league for decade, basically. So. It's the best for the abs. They need to move on. They need to cut the cord. It's it's tough. I, you know, I argued a lot for bringing him back, and but well, I mean, I, the, this the isn't one what they want. Thing they I want to move on just, with Grubauer. I'm sure they do, and I, I'm not seeing bring Varley back as you know even sort of a platoon guy. Um, but you know, say he, you know, say he doesn't like the offers that are out there. You know, maybe. The Avs are like, you know, look, you can come back for this, and it's not much, but that's all we're going to pay you. I don't think he would. I mean, why would you? Yeah. Why would you? Wouldn't do that. That's you know, embarrassing or whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, the amount he would have to take as a cut because they're not going to want to pay him as a backup more than they're paying Groob. It just—it's sad. It, it's sad that, and I'll always remember that he won that game against Edmonton. His last start at home, and it, yeah. 
it always felt that like was a pretty the good end, start in a backup role. And they, yeah, and they absolutely needed to win that yeah, game. It, it's not Barley's fault, but his time here is a legacy yeah. of failure, unfortunately. And I think, <laughs> and may, maybe when he officially signs somewhere else, then people can really, I don't know, reflect back. But I think he deserves so much more than the goodbye. He deserves that he was a left team in front now. of him that doesn't work him so hard he breaks. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the Duchesne thing, like. It's not entirely his fault why they sucked for so long, but after a certain amount of time, you just need you need to say goodbye. Yeah. But I hope there's appreciation for him, whatever wherever he goes, because I think that has been a very underrated storyline of this season. Yeah. I mean, he's the second best goalie in Avs history by a good margin, so... He deserves all the credit that he gets. I just think it's time to be done. Yeah. Yeah, if he's going to be on a low-paying short deal for not a starter, it's not going to be here. That that wouldn't be saving face. That If you're going to move on, go somewhere else. I mean, I would think you would just go to the KHL. If he's getting just garbage he likes offers. America. Yeah, but he's, he's not a low-rent backup, you know? I, I don't ever see Barley doing that. So I think he will get a starters deal. I think he's too good, and teams have cycled through so much trash in that. I think you're entirely and he, right, and you know, I think he'll get a, at least a few years. But I also think that there's gonna not going to be any no move protection because he may end up in Seattle. That's a good point. Yeah. So let's get to maybe the the biggest question that we have. Period. Wait, you forgot one important free agent. Sven, he's not coming no, back. Sven's restricted. He's an RFA. Yeah, okay. no, I'm talking about Andrew Agazzino. No, no. <laughs> he cannot come back. I'm sorry. It won't be relevant to the NHL roster anyway. You so. would hope. You would hope. No, it won't. I, be- I-, I bet he comes back. No. He might. It, it, it doesn't matter. It like If yeah, he gets called up over Cowton Bowers, then just forget it. <laughs> I-, I think the Eagles love him. The fans love him. and He's not a good you know. leader. He's almost 30 years old. He's like, not really a leader. They just want him to score goals, but we're getting exactly. off topic. That's what he does. Not to mute all for the rest of the show. The biggest question that we have left is, do we consider the Colorado Avalanche a contender next season? No. For the cup? As they are right now. For the cup, yes. Like, are, you, no. are you talking like full-on cup contender or full-on like they're going to be It's good what you want to define as contender. That's yeah. also part of it. What do you define as contender? Contender to I me is has a really good chance to be in the conference final. Okay. That means there's six, maybe seven contenders in the league at a given time. I'm going to give that a big yes. I'm going to say no, but I will define, say my definition of a contender is someone. I, I don't, I, I think I'd shorten it from six, to seven, maybe more like four or five. Kind of the four or five best teams in the league. To me, that's what happened a to the four or five best teams in the league this year. Well, <laughs> nothing. So then again, you could still have the San Jose Boston final and one of those teams win the cup. Yeah. So, you know, would I put the Avs to begin the season on par with San Jose and Boston? Maybe not quite, which it's, is why I say no. It's a soft yes for me. 
Um, I'm not super confident that they'll be true contenders, but I am confident that they will be better in the regular season than than they were this year. I think making the playoffs should be and hopefully will be a given, and beyond the second round should be the ultimate goal. Yeah, at this point, for them to not make the playoffs is not acceptable. Like they, I, they need I, to clearly be in that tier of teams that can expect to make the playoffs every year. I think they're going to be, you know, I, I think they're going to be widely touted as a contender for the Central Division top spot. They already um, are, which is a good step. They, they already have been. Um, I think they'll probably, you know, I think they have a good shot to be either first or second in the central and, and win at least one round next year. And, you know, after that, it's, it's rolling the dice. So if they, you learned anything from the playoffs this year, that playoffs are just ridiculous. So, <laughs> so then the, the back half of this question is if not, or if, if you're kind of on the fence, like maybe where Rudo's at, what do they still need to do this off season to get to contention? For the fourth year in a row, a top six forward. <laughs> yeah. So th- this obviously includes that they're about to have the number four overall pick. Um, it includes that they're also going to have number 16. It includes street agency. What do they need to do to get there? Obviously, a- another scoring forward is massively important. Um, I think they need less roster filler. They need guys that can bring more to the table that can play structured play good defense they need to have a deeper team in that sense like it is funny when the the one line team the no scoring and then you see nieto and comfer and all these guys scoring goals which is like ridiculous to say that but i think yeah I'm <laughs> going to be big on the no roster filler you you have to do better you have to upgrade yeah, you have to have better players, and I don't expect them to go out and get a bunch of ten million dollars forwards. It'll be a miracle if they even get one. I don't one think it'll be a miracle. They goals. need to get one. End of story. This is the year <laughs> we've wanted them to get one for a long time, but they have a team that just made the second round that's trending up. People are going to want to come here. They have all the money in the world to pay someone whatever they want to come here. There are significant number of quality top six forwards available on the market as well. Which never happens. Right. This is The time is now more than it's ever been and will ever be for a long time. Yeah, I think it's they... 50-50 if they actually get someone like that. And what scares me about missing out on that is what they end up with. Is what plan and... B is. Right. Yeah. They, that's what I'm saying. They cannot miss. Because yeah. <laughs> if they for the miss, off-season. plan B has to be do nothing, right? Yeah. My, like... my plan for the offseason starts with do no harm. And that's the most important thing. Because I think even if they don't get this top six forward that they may or may not need, um, they can't settle for something that's gonna no, be yeah yuck. no more roster filler no more cap dumps no, no more Beverly. waiver guys no more guys no more that were in the nhl no no like yeah, no backup plans is basically where i think we're at here it's like if you can go add our Timmy well Pinder they actually and, do need a backup goalie so they do need a backup plan <laughs> well this is where and that's uh, actually that's, that's actually kind of important because their goalie situation is really fluid now with one guy signed yeah, so they, they 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 must get an NHL backup 
So I yeah, that that's easy happen. to do. That's yeah. not hard. That's not that difficult. Plan Plan B is supposed it to be internal options. So that you're know. not wasting three, four million dollars on roster filler. Well, you should have Plan A, Panarin, Plan B, Skinner, <laughs> Plan C, Anders Lee, Plan D, Kevin Hayes. Like, there's too many free agent plans that you should have to miss on all of them. I think when you get into the Kevin Hayes territory, you start getting into the danger zone. Yeah. Yeah. It, okay, it's especially when you get down to like the Furland zone, which is really scary. Right, but you need him. to draw your line at wherever you think is far enough, and say we have to get one of these. Oh, it's I mean, I do every, I, I do all the time, but it's just, uh, you know, we know you that the apps sometimes struggle with talent evaluation you with people inside and outside of their organization. I mean, I would you love have to see to... Furland added to this team, but he can't be the only addition, and and consider that a victory here, because then you're you probably have settled at that point, and the plan is do not settle. So if you get an eight, like you get an S tier forward. And Furland, then that's a that's a home run. But if you get Furland to replace replaced Billy, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. But yeah, obviously the the backup goaltender is a humongous gaping hole if if they don't bring back Simeon Varlamov, which we are expecting yeah. them not to. And I agree with Rudo that it's easy to do that, but it's just until it's done, you just don't know. And it, you know, it, and they still they don't have anyone for the AHL. You know, they, they don't have over. I, I'm just so right. unworried about the goalie situation. Okay. That's, I, I, that's fair. You know, I'll worry about it until it's done. I, I don't think it's a big deal, but again, it's. Just, I, I would much rather. When you have their one focus. guy signed, you, you worry about it. I'm not being Steve Dangle saying, look, they only have three defensemen. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I, just, like, I don't. You know, it's going to be some work and they got to do it. My focus would be much more on rounding out their prospect depth because how you become a contender and how you stay a contender is solid prospect depth that you can develop and continue the team running. And I think the Avs are starting to move into that category of they need to have the cupboards full for this run. Well, they got Tishke and Lorac already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you need need to bring up some internal guys on... ELCs like at some point they're they're not going to have the money they're not going to have the money to go out and pay Willie four million bucks to do something that someone on an ELC should be should be doing more or less um, but what what's fun to me here is that we have gotten to the end of the show and it feels like the beginning of of a massive conversation right like. Oh yeah, I, this offseason is going to be wild. That's that's like the We've biggest given our listeners takeaway. Some food for thought. That, that, it's the biggest takeaway from this whole season for me is this. Like l- last year was a gift. We we wanted them to do better, and they did way more better than we expected. But this year's the beginning. It is, and the, yeah, the, the, that's the thing is it's it's both exciting. And it's kind of scary because they have so much work to do this summer. Like, it is such a great beginning. They have so many good pieces. But now is the work to make it all fit together and to work. Like, they have, they're going to have to sign, I think it's like 22 contracts. You just went through the UFAs. If you include all the RFAs, that you have up to 10 that could file arbitration. They're going to have to make qualifying offer decisions on some guys. They're going to have to sign some more prospects even just to fill out the AHL next year. They're going to have to, you know, the big free agency question that we had, they're going to have to spend some money. 
Also, big questions. What are you going to do with Miko's contract? Zadorov, Comfort, Kerfoot. And then... And then, do you even get into the conversation? Do you think about extending, say, Gerard early? You know, the um, all these things are going to come up. And then Barry, do you sign it, Barry this summer? It's all excitement. To Barry, me. I'm not scared Barry at all. Barry is the one thing that yeah, Barry is something that they really do have to make a, a decision yeah, on. Yeah, that's fair. Like, that's a real in decision. In the next month, yeah, Joe's going to be a busy <clears> you know, boy this summer. Yeah, I mean, before the draft, you really have to know what what the deal is with Barry. Like, you know, if you can sign him, if you want to sign him. And what they do with the four and sixteen's big. It's it's like Did we just lose Earl the two hour mark? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did I die again? Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's fitting. Oh my god, that's but, but you gotta make Sounds more right decisions than wrong on a lot of the stuff. Like you screw around with the Miko contract that that could hurt you down the road. Like there's a lot of these things that will have future implications that they have Uh, to get right this summer. Why worry? The fact that we have future implications that matter have, has me pretty high right now. So yeah, I mean the great, the great thing to fall back on is if they really don't do much, they're going to be okay. So they they have a, a starting point that we really haven't seen before. Right. And it, I, I think that's that, that's probably confusing. I know it is to me, and I'm sure it is to a lot of people. Is the urgency to do a lot of things is there, and they, they really, you know, they really can't mess up a lot of these things. But I even if they do, just a, even if they mess. just do an okay job at everything, you know, a good B summer. If, if the baseline is do nothing, then sure. No, I'm just saying there's a plenty of bad that they can yeah. do. But it, where they're starting from is so different from where it has been over the last 10 years that, it, you know, that there's a lot of things that will go right no matter what. I don't know about that. I mean, the defense is going to be better. It would be, have to manage they'd have to, to really, really mess up to make the offense worse. Like keep Ray Bennett? <laughs> <laughs> That that's the number one thing they need to do to reach contention is we need some assistant change here. Yeah, that would be. I mean, I know we always like f- firing Craig Billington, but I think getting rid of Ray Bennett is actually more of a dire situation. It's it's a short term. In the short term, it's yeah. much more impactful. Yeah. Long term, whatever. Short term, much more impactful. Um, and and the thing with what we've been saying is like. You know, it, all right. The Avs are good now, and they can finally recruit some free agents. Well, that goes for coaches too, and it, they've had problems finding coaches. Um, and this this is a team where you could pretty much go to anyone that's a, a keen offensive mind and say, "Look what we've got. Does this interest you?" And they're going to be like, "Why, well, yes, it sure does." And and that's a that's a really good situation to be in as far as coaching because. I mean, the Avs really haven't had much to tempt people before, and now they do. So I, I think they really have an opportunity if they want it. Well, we'll see if they get to the point of contention or not. And uh, and this is the part where I always get a little awkward at the end of the year because I don't have any upcoming games to tease. 
I'm always amazed that anybody wants to sit here and listen to the show every episode, um, but y'all do, and we, we wouldn't still be around if it weren't for you, so thank you so much for spending your time with us. I love and appreciate all of you. Burgundy Radio will be on hiatus as long as the Avalanche are, as is tradition, which means the next time you hear from us, we'll be following the NHL entry draft, Colorado pick number four, like we said, as well as number 16, like we also said, and they have two-thirds as well, and as well as their normal picks. Um, after that, we'll have a show around free agency, probably hang out and live chat about the signings as they're announced in the Burgundy Rainbow Discord. Not sure about doing the draft live again, though. Um, nah. We may just have a general voice hangout. I think it's probably more appropriate. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure the, the 2A crew will be hanging out, but we probably won't make it an episode. Yeah. Finally, we'll be back in your ear holes right around trading camp 2019 as the Avs make their next push for the Stanley Cup, which is a bizarre thing to say and have be true, but it is. Um, barring any other bizarre news, like Jared Bednar quits the team in August or something, uh, that's the summer show schedule. So... Enjoy catching up on your shows and movies and video game backlogs and barbecues and hiking and books and oh, who are these strangers and why do they live in my house? Say my spouse and children? Are you sure? Hope you have a great summer. I will not because summer is terrible, but I'm out. We're finally going to see Endgame tonight. Shout out to everyone for agreeing not to spoil it. I've, I've seen like a couple of shots that don't really reveal much of anything. Unlike Thrones people who are like, okay, the five second statute of limitations has expired. I can't believe this character killed that one. Minefield if you watch that show but not live. Bye everybody. Rockin' the two A style. <laughs> We're just getting warmed up. What are y'all gonna do your big rant cast? Sounds like Wednesday night. <sighs> yeah. It needs to happen. We need we need to put a bow on it. It's going to be a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. P- positivity. No.